You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. Pastor Mark, what is your greatest long-term fear about Mars Hill as it continues to grow? Um, boy, that's a good question. I'm, I'm at the season where I'm super-duper encouraged, um, really humbled by what God has done. Um, I guess uh, the things that I'm always worried about are, uh, my, I mean, for me, doing something to disqualify myself or discredit the gospel, like that would destroy me. Um, you know, so many people loving, giving, serving, praying, caring, that a guy in my position can really gum that up pretty easy if he becomes arrogant or um, unrepentant or unteachable. Um, so I'm always praying for my own heart, like keep me humble, keep me close to yourself, Lord Jesus, keep me close to grace, my wife, keep me close to my babies, um, keep me close to our church, um, which quite frankly is one of the reasons I'm visiting the campuses and seeing people. I just don't want to be a conference speaker who flies in and talks and flies home. I want to be a pastor and I want to be here and I want to be with our people and I want to be with my family. Hello and welcome to the City of Man podcast. My name is Coyle Neal. I'm an associate professor of political science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Uh, Mars Hill Church in Seattle, Washington uh, was technically founded in 1995 uh, with the Acts 29 church planting network following in 1998. Uh, Both of these entities founded by Mark Driscoll and a a group of other pastors and individuals uh, concerned with spreading the gospel uh, in Seattle, Washington, uh, and then throughout the nation and eventually throughout the world. Uh, It's hard to say exactly when the church, uh, when Mars Hill Church peaked, Uh, not least because I I think it was still growing when when Mark Driscoll resigned. Uh, At its height, uh, Mars Hill had 15 campuses in five states with the stated goal of having 50 campuses and 50,000 members. Uh, For reasons that aren't entirely clear, uh, Mark Driscoll resigned uh, in October 2014. Uh, By the end of November 2014, Mars Hill Church had dissolved into multiple independent churches Uh, And then in late 2021, Christianity Today released a podcast uh, by Mike Cusper called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill uh, that took off at least in the evangelical world, if not in the wider culture. Uh, Here to help us think about uh, both the podcast uh, and the uh, the, the wider events surrounding Mars Hill uh, is Dr. Jonathan Lehman, editorial director at Nine Marks, elder at Chevrolet Baptist Church, uh, adjunct professor at numerous seminaries, uh, and the author of many books, uh, several of which we've talked about on this show, Dr. Lehman, welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Coyle. Or should I say Dr. Neal? There we go. You better say Dr. Neal. I, I earned that. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I'm always amused by the uh, the, the PhDs who, who get upset about their titles not being used. I'm like, yeah, it's yeah, it, it's an achievement, but I mean, come yeah. on. It's, it's not like you're yeah. digging ditches yeah. or whatever. Uh, uh, so, I, so we'll agree to call each, call each other Coyle and Jonathan. Yeah, that, that sounds fine to me. Um, I, w- I want to give you the chance, though, to go by Dr. Lehman if you want to. <laughs> I mean, how often do you get that? Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, I, I gave sort of the the ten thousand mile high overview there. Uh, did uh, uh-huh. is there any other detail you'd throw in? So founded, fell apart, uh, in between, hit fifty ish, uh, hit uh, hit fifteen campuses. Yeah. Uh, yeah. any, any I think these are good things to talk about. I think it's it's worthwhile to go back and excavate, um, you know, a, a, a burned down house and what what caused that house to burn just just today in the news. Fire in New York City turned out it was a, an electric space heater, uh, and 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 I'm grateful to f- firemen's ability to go in and, and say what caused this fire here in this apartment building. Well, it turns out it was the electric space heater because that allows us to avoid future fires in the future. I just said the same thing twice, but you, you know what I mean. And so I, I think there's value in in doing some of this excavation work with the rise and fall of 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 Mars Hill. And I'm I'm grateful to Mike Cosper for beginning that conversation. I don't think it said everything that needed to be said. Uh, there's concerns people have about it, but on the whole, I'm I'm grateful for him for for initiating this conversation. And on the whole, I think he did a great job in the um in the podcast series and calling attention to certain problems. It does seem a lot of the critiques came from the cultural left. It does seem that the podcast as a whole kind of participated in the growing wave of angst towards complementarians and Calvinists 
it seemed to be a part of that wave. You know, if we go back 10, 15 years, it was cool to be a Calvinist. Now it's not cool. And a complementarian 15 years ago is a good thing. Now it's not, or at least in certain circles. And, and the podcast seemed to participate in the present wave and maybe even contribute to it. And that's, that uh, might be where some, I'd have some of my questions and challenges, but I know Mike, he's, he's a good, he's a good brother. And, uh, as I said, I, I think I'm, uh, he did a good job in, in starting this conversation and raising many of the, the problems that he raised. They are worth raising and worth calling attention to. Yeah. And I, I uh, I should say, if you haven't listened to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, you should go listen to that before you finish this episode. But it's like, what, 30 hours long? I mean, yeah, it's a, you might it's, as well finish this first and then go back and listen. Well, listen to the first few, listen to a couple in the middle, and, and maybe listen to the last one, last couple. If, if you don't have time to sit down and listen to all, is it 14 or 15 or 13? So, yeah, something like that. But but a couple of them are two hours long. And, uh, I mean, there's there's some bonus episodes in there. Uh I will also point out that this this episode of the City of Man podcast uh, is the first part of a across-the-network review of Mars Hill. So we're dealing with the church government side of it in this episode, which is why we have uh, Jonathan on, because he's an expert in church government. Uh, the uh, uh, Christian Feminist podcast will be digging into the uh, complementarian women's issues side of things. Uh, and then uh, two of our other podcasts are also uh, grappling with it, although I don't remember specifically what they're dealing with. I think, I think the celebrity culture side of it for one of them, and I, I forget what the other one is doing. Uh, Jonathan, before we, we get into the church government stuff, uh, how, did, uh, how did you first encounter uh, Mark Driscoll? Uh, what, what was your initial response to him? Uh, did that change over time? If, if so, how? Yeah, sure. I think my first encounter with him was seeing articles and books like a lot of people around 2006 or seven. I read his book, Confessions of a Reformation, Reformation Rev or something like that, telling the story of, of Mars Hill. I remember reading that. And and around 2007 or eight, me and a colleague traveled out to Seattle and we attended a boot camp. And we did that sort of as an investigation. Okay, who are these guys? What are they saying? Do we agree? Do we disagree? You know, we're nine marks. We talk about church reform and healthy churches and things like that. And and they, they were, you know, offering this program for how to plant churches. And so just part of my job is field research, you might say. And so for that reason, I read the book. And for that reason, I attended this boot camp. And this, as I said, was 2007-ish, I think, maybe eight early on. Yeah, so th th those would have been my first encounter. I, I don't know that I ever met him personally. I don't recall that I did. But that was my exposure to the message and the church and so forth. And uh, you are you are welcome not to share this if you, if you don't want to. But what, what was your response at the time, if you remember? Well, at the time, it was, it was mixed. On the one hand, he, he was saying a lot of things that I appreciated. And, um, you know, a colleague, the colleague and I who attended this boot camp in Seattle came back. And remember, we said to Mark Dever, Wow, they're saying a lot of the things we are. They're emphasizing expositional preaching. They're emphasizing a plurality of elders, even the nitty gritty things like churches. You know, we don't, we don't, when we nominate an elder, you know, we, we don't make the man an elder. We just affirm a man as an elder for, for doing what he's already been doing. Kind of, you know, nitty gritty inside baseball sort of stuff when you're talking to pastors. They were saying, Mark was saying a lot of the things that we've been saying. And so we were very appreciative of all of that. I appreciated the fact that he emphasized complementarianism and he emphasized uh, biblical teaching on manhood and womanhood, or at least elements of it. Right. At the same time, from the very beginning, yeah, we felt the edginess. And in those early years, seven, eight, nine, ten, I remember praying to the Lord multiple times, oh Lord, Please preserve this brother, because I could see, A, the impact he was having in, in good ways, but B, oh, the thin iceness of it, the edginess of it, the, oh, are there questions of character at play here? Uh, is there is there a bravado? Is there is there a pride? I, I don't know if I would have used the word pride at the time. I might have. I, I I I don't remember. But I remember feeling this thing, this enterprise is risky enough. I feel burdened to pray that God would keep this brother in righteousness and wisdom, so that he might not stumble, so that the sheep might not be scattered. And I, I remember praying earnestly to the Lord on a number of occasions for Mark Driscoll back in the, in those days. Which again, it gives you it gives you the mix, right? I see the good, uh, but something's 
the ISIS then here. Oh God, please help. And, and yeah, before we, we dig into the, the weeds of the church government side of things, uh, we're, we're almost seven years from the collapse of Mars Hill, right? We're 2014 to 2022. Um, Looking back, uh, you, you've said that it's it's sort of mixed. Um, how, how do we balance, say, the conversions that went on under his his ministry, the the sanctification, the the growth experienced under his ministry on on the one hand, uh, against yeah. all of the train wreck on the other? Right? Is 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 this a Charles Finney Second Great Awakening type situation with a, a burnt over district in in Seattle yeah. where just Functionally, there's nothing left behind, or is this more of like a first great awakening situation where, yeah, there were there were problems, there were extremes, but in general, we look and say, yeah, the the, the benefits outweigh the costs. Like, what's what's our takeaway here? Yeah, let me answer that in two veins. First, in a theological vein, and then a kind of a ministerial prag- practical vein. Uh, theologically, I, I don't think we should be surprised by any of it. Uh, if you're a Christian, you understand that we're all sinners through and through, apart by the grace of God. So when when uh, Christians and Christian leaders that you look up to stumble, like you shouldn't be surprised in a way, right? And uh, but by God's grace, there go I. And I, I think that's something that we always need to affirm. I don't say that to be insensitive or to downplay the wickedness of of of, of any sins that great Christian quote unquote great Christian leaders commit. But I am to say to make I am trying to make an a theological affirmation that Jesus alone is sinless. Jesus alone is righteousness. Jesus alone is the object of our worship, not any human leader, right? And if your faith is built on any human leader, you will be disappointed, and your faith will crumble, and you will deconstruct. Put your faith in Christ. Right? That's that's the heart of Christianity. There was one who was sinless. So in that sense, yeah, I think I think we as Christians have a mixed anthropology. We we can affirm the good, but we also affirm the bad in each one of us, even as believers. Right? Okay, so that's my theological response to this. Um, and and pastors and and any Christian. Uh, we, you know, we need to be preparing our people for understanding that our, our best Christian friends and leaders will fail us. This is going to happen. Let me prepare. This is going to happen again. And your faith does not rest on that. Okay, that's my first response. This, my second response is, yeah, there are the kind of more practical getting into my job now answer is, is yeah, I think there are certain ways of going about the ministry revivalistic, pragmatic, reverse engineering, um, ways of going about growing churches that lend themselves to these kinds of catastrophes and disasters. When I'm building by the wisdom of man, when I live by the wisdom of man, I'm going to die by the wisdom of man, right? And and we should instead be building our, our, our ministries on the ordinary means of grace. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth, right? So I'm, I'm here to preach. I'm here to evangelize. I'm here to make disciples. And the Lord may give me a big increase numerically in this world. He may not, but that's not finally my responsibility. My responsibility is to walk with integrity and to preach rightly. That's my job. And I do think the Mars Hill program was marked by a deep, pragmatic, Finney-esque, revivalistic, reverse engineering-driven program that lent itself to putting hope in the wrong things and giving emphasis to the wrong things that more often than not leads to that kind of disappointment. I can unpack any of that, but yeah. Yes. Well, I think that that does sort of lead into the, the big question for, for this show, but uh, uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with, with what you've said, but I think if, if, you know, 2005 Mark Driscoll were sitting here, uh, uh-huh. he, he would say, uh, uh, he he would say, yeah, I agree with he, he everything you just said. What's that? Oh, I know. I know. He did, you know, you're exactly right. Well, he he would say, I agree with everything you've just said. What yep. what we're doing at Mars Hill is we're taking all of that and we are incorporating contemporary technology. So yes. so yeah, everything you said a hundred years ago would have been bound by physical space, right? It would have been as many people as you can cram into a room, and maybe with a little bit of electronic amplification, and that's that's the limit of your church. Uh, today, the the internet, uh, our electronic communications uh, ability. You know, you and I are recording a podcast right now, even though we're what you know, two thousand miles apart. Right. Uh, that needs to be accounted for, also, which means we can have 
multi-site, multi-campus churches. We can have a church of a million people. I think you said at one point was was a, a possibility, uh, and and still be faithful to Scripture. Uh, we can we can do all of that stuff, uh, all of the stuff you're talking about. Preach the gospel faithfully, proclaim the word, uh, make disciples, and so on. We can just do that on, on a bigger scale now. So is there is there something inherently unbiblical, uh, anti-Christian uh, about the scale and the technology. Again, let me say two things. Number number one, I appreciate you drawing attention to the particular polity question of multi-site. Ironically, I think more fundamentally, that's not the deepest problem. I think the deeper sure. problem inside of which the multi-site thing exists, the, the larger umbrella is an attractionalism, is a pragmatism, uh, which in, in, in fact, every area of a ministry. So in other words, here I am, it's Monday morning, I'm a pastor, and I'm trying to ask the question, what do I do to grow as a church? Do I open my Bible and say, okay, what does the Bible say, A, and B, how do I teach people the Bible? That, that's my job. Or do I say, okay, how can I convince people that I'm that Christianity is cool? How can I convince people that we're just like them and that Christianity is going to meet the needs that are already feeling? So, for instance, I remember when Mark Driscoll talked about the gospel, he would talk about back in the olden days, people people wanted a response to uh, their problem for their need for forgiveness. People know there's back in the 50s and 60s, people knew they were sinners. And so we, we offered them a gospel of forgiveness. These days, however, people aren't convinced that they're sinners who need forgiveness. Rather, they think they're enslaved and in bondage, and what they need is freedom. So we're going to give them the gospel of freedom. Okay, notice what he's doing. And that's the way he talked even back in 2005 and six. Notice what he's doing there. What he's doing is he's he's saying to non-Christians, hey, what what's the problem you're deal, dealing with? Is it a, is it a sense of a sense of sin? No. Okay. Is it a sense of, you know, addiction? Oh, hey, Christianity's got something for you. In other words, I'm letting the non-Christian define the problem that Christianity then solves rather than going to the non-Christian and saying, God has a problem with you. You've offended him by breaking his law. Right. And, uh, and in fact, his story was a little more complicated. In the 80s, he said there was a, there was a problem with ennui and a problem with boredom and anxiety. So we offered a, a problem of fulfillment. A gospel of fulfillment. Now we're offering a gospel of freedom. You know, so go back to Rick Warren. Christianity will give you a sense of purpose. Okay, it's, it's Rick Warren in that sense is doing the same thing as Mark Driscoll. Rick Warren is giving you know baby boomers a gospel of fulfillment. Mark Driscoll is giving them a gospel of freedom. But in both cases, what are they doing? They're letting non-Christian define the problem that hey, Christianity, by the way, has a problem. Let, I can give you a purpose-filled life. I can give you fulfillment. I can give you freedom. Says Jesus, right? Okay, great. Well, who's still Lord in that scenario? In a sense, the non-Christian is still Lord, not Jesus. Jesus is just there to give them what they already want. In other words, there's, there's a larger ministerial philosophical program going on in these philosophies of ministries, you see, in which the world gets to define what Christianity is all about. And those problems were there from the get-go. And um, that, when I'm talking about reverse engineering and revivalistic, that, that, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, now inside of that, here's my second response. Inside of that is a problem of of um, a polity and ecclesiology and the question of multi-site. And what you get with multi-site is you get a separation between presence and ministry or se- uh, presence and authority. Authority is no longer being exercised inside of the gathered congregation. It's spread across multiple congregations. You have have a pastor or an elder board who is responsible for multiple congregations with whom they will never gather. They have authority over multiple congregations with whom they will never gather. And that's that's the challenge that multi-site brings along, among other things. And uh, so, yeah, you, you can expect to start to see various kinds of abuses and problems there. Now, naturally, the Presbyterian and the Anglican is going to respond with some challenges to what I'm saying because they're doing the same thing in a different way. But yeah, these 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 are the these are the questions. In, in, in other words, they're doing the same thing in terms of authority over a bishop will have authority over multiple congregations. A presbytery will have authority over multiple congregations. Uh, but but even there, I, I, I dare say there's more safety rather than having a single pastor who is piping in his face. No, no bishop is piping in his face, as a bishop at least, piping in his face and preaching to multiple congregations. No presbytery is doing that. So the multi-site phenomenon 
is a concentration of power and authority and charismatic presence, quote-unquote presence, uh, over multiple churches in a way uh, not even not even the Episcopalians, small the Anglicans, uh, can rival. Yeah, and and can you uh, can you walk us through that a little more? Like what what were you know where does church polity fit into this debacle specifically? What were uh, what were the governance issues? So Casper uh, in the podcast says that these things happened. Uh, he doesn't really give us any details. So he talks about the, the transition in the govern, governance of, uh, of Mars Hill, um, and it involved firing some of the original uh, original yeah. elders in the church. Uh, it doesn't really give us any details. And if you don't know, that's fine. I can, I'll just cut that question out. But uh, uh, can you, uh, if, if you know, can you talk us through uh, the governance changes and, and where that fit into everything that was going on? Well, my my, uh, my my understanding of that is is mostly just from things I heard through the podcast series, and maybe a few additional few additional things I heard here or there, um, uh, or or read from from Mark himself. More to the point, uh, I think early on, Mark meant what he said about the plurality of elders, and he meant what he said about one elder having one each elder having one vote, even him. Right. So if I got 10 elders here and I'm the senior pastor, I, I'm just one of 10. Right. We all get one vote. I think early on he really meant that those were his convictions. Now, at the same time, he also was always a very severe critic of congregationalism. Right. He and James McDonald would use the language of, 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 of a congregationalism being from hell, from Satan. In other words, you know, you, you look at the you get to look at the biblical text like Hebrews 13, verse 17, where members are instructed to submit to their elders. And they'd say, OK, well, where do you see congregationalism in the Bible? This is ridiculous. The congregation does not have authority over the elders. The elders have final authority in in the church on earth. And they were both staunch, James and Mark were staunch critics of congregationalism. So that was consistent from the beginning to the end. So there's no accountability coming from the church, per se. You can forget that. But also, there's no accountability coming from outside the church, whether from a presbytery or uh, a bishop, right, as in a Presbyterian or an Anglican structure. So from the beginning to the end, there was no outside accountability at all. So neither from the church, the congregation, nor from outside. What's left? The elders. The shift, as I understand it, from, say, 2000, 2004, 2006, to the end, 2010, 2013, 14, and whatever, was a concentration of authority inside of the elders, from the plurality of men to the man. And I, I think that's pretty common. The more a church grows, the more it has success, the more the church realizes that its numerical and external and visible growth depends on the charismatic gifts of one man, the more they're going to begin to justify, A, mistakes he might make in order to keep him going, and B, concentrating authority in his hands and you know, poo-pooing any criticisms of him. Because, hey, look, our success depends on him. We, we got to protect that. We got to, we got to, we got to save that. And, and if, and if he believes his own press clippings, the more that man believes that, yes, this church's external visible success depends on me, the less he's going to be able to hear criticism and the more authority and power are going to concentrate in his hand. And my understanding of what happened from the audio and again from a few other conversations I heard from people is, is that it's inside of the elder board there was a concentration, right? And and I uh, I would imagine, although I wasn't there, uh, and I don't know for sure, uh, I would imagine that kind of the the twofold issue you run into is one: even if theoretically all of the elders are equal and have the same vote, you could also have kind of the practical reality of yeah, but whose vote really counts? Yeah. Uh, but also that that uh, you know the concentration of power as things grow, that's fairly usual rule in the world of politics, at least. Oh, right? uh, absolutely. Uh, Especially I mean, with their success. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there's there's a reason that the House of Representatives, for example, is entirely focused on the office of the Speaker. Like the, the Speaker is a dictator in the House for all yeah. intents and purposes. The Senate is not, and it entirely has to do with the size of the entity. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it seems counterintuitive to say the larger it gets, the more power gets focused in smaller and smaller places uh, until you stop to think, no, there actually does need to be some kind of order and some kind of control. Uh, and the kind of reasonable human conclusion is, well, let's make sure that one person is calling the shots. Well, um, you, th- you, th- you think of, you're speaking of political science, you think it was, was it Neustadt, that, that famous book on presidential yeah. power and politics yeah. and how it, it, it grew uh, to, and kind of culminated in Nixon. And, yeah. and the power that he 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 was able to wield by the end of his presidency, and so yeah, there is often a natural sociological, especially when there's success and when there's numerical size, for for power to concentrate in the middle, and and there it comes down to, here here's 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 the deal, Coyle, uh, in terms of polity, and I'm I'm just quoting Mark Dever here. If you if you give me a congregational church and a Presbyterian church and an Anglican church, right, three different models of government, and let's throw in an elder rule church like like Driscoll's. So, yeah, so his his would be what independent but elder ruled. Independent right? but elder ruled. So it's there. sort of in between the congregational independent and Presbyterian plurality of elders model, sort of in between there. Okay, you give me those four models, churches of those. When things are going well, nobody has a problem. Right. When things start to go south, that's when the true differences between the congregational, the elder rule, the Presbyterian, and the Anglican church or Episcopalian church, small e, will show up, right? And that's when people really feel it. So when Mars Hill is growing and power is concentrating, who cares? But when the man in whom the power is concentrating begins to abuse that power in various ways, well, then we start to care. We ask questions about polity. Yeah, and, and I, I think it's it's kind of interesting. I, I don't know uh, that the question I have written down here for you uh, and that you've already kind of addressed would would things have gone differently with a more biblical church government in, in Seattle? Uh, whether uh, oversight from a, a synod or episcopacy above or, or oversight yeah. from the congregation below. Um, in this case, I I don't know uh, the, the, that things would have gone differently just because of how central the personality of Mark Driscoll was to the church. Yeah. Yeah. Even even if it had a congregational structure in place uh, or uh, a bishop who came by once a year yeah. to check things out or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Let, let, let me speak out of both sides of my mouth by saying yes and no to your question. Sure. Do it. <laughs> both sides. Um, n- no, it wouldn't have made a difference because the fundamental problem here, I, I would argue, was character. Right. People say it was complementarianism. People say it was polity. Well, I, I think the fundamental problem was character. What does Paul emphasize? What does Paul spill more ink on than anything else when it comes to elders? What they do? How many there are? No, it's on it's on their character, right? First Timothy 3 and Titus 1. He cares more than anything that these men are above reproach. And so when churches are considering their elders, the first thing they need to consider is not the man's talent. It's the man's character. Right? These are the men who we are holding up as examples for other Christians to follow. And so follow as he follows Christ, follow him. And uh, so the fundamental, the first and foremost failure, I think, at Mars Hill was, was a matter of character. And, and okay, so that's, that's my no, it wouldn't have made a difference. My yes, it would have made a difference, is good polities, biblical polities, I think have a way of corralling and correcting bad character. I didn't mean to use so many C's, but there it is. Corralling and correcting bad (laughs) character insofar as there is an accountability mechanism. Now, I, as a congregationalism, congregationalist, an elder-led congregationalist, would say that, number one, the other elders had a job to do and they failed to do it. And I think a lot of them realize that now, praise God, in their humility. I think many have confessed that. So, number one, the the congregation is relying on the elders to step up to the senior pastor when 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 he fails and say, hey, Brother, we love you, but no, you cannot keep crossing this line. So number one, there was there was a failure of a plurality of elders, and number two, I I would argue that there there was a failure of the congregation to to check the check the uh, check the senior pastor and his failures. Now, very often, a lot of common criticism you'll see out there on the, in the internets, interwebs of the world, social medias of the world, is that hey, this is a problem with independent churches. What they needed was a presbytery or episcop. Episcopacy. Well, brother, you know as well as I, going back to the Federalist Papers, how, how do you usually, sociologically speaking, correct abuses of power? By pushing it upwards or by pushing it downwards? I think wisdom, political wisdom of the ages teaches, and I also think the Bible teaches, 
that you check power, you keep it accountable, accountable by pushing it downward to the entire church. And that's why Paul goes after the Galatian members, not the Galatian elders, in Galatians 1, when there's a false gospel being preached. That's why Paul goes after the Corinthian members, not the Corinthian elders, in 1 Corinthians 5, when a man is living morally. The whole church, every priest king in the New Testament, every member of their church is finally accountable. So yeah, I think congregationalism and I think elder-led congregationalism would have been helpful, at least if it was practiced well, wisely, and as it should be biblically, in correcting some of the problems that went on at Mars Hill. I, I think a, uh, I, have a, I have a follow-up question to that that's a little bit of a tangent, but it's directly related because of, of Mark Driscoll. But uh, yeah. I think there, there is another issue here uh, with, with some of the character questions that you've raised uh, and accountability from the congregation and, and so on. And I, I think... The question is, um, how how does that accountability work when the character issue, as best I can tell, and I'm I'm you know not a Mark Driscoll expert or whatever, uh, it wasn't so much a a matter of explicit public sin. You know, he wasn't cheating on his wife, he yeah. wasn't doing drugs, he wasn't you know doing yeah. you know, any any of the, the, the lists of things. He wasn't you know worshiping idols or whatever, right? Uh, Instead, it was an attitude, right? He 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 was kind of a jerk, uh, and uh, he he would say things that, even if they were true, they were said in ways that were obviously intentionally designed to rile up the listener. Uh, how how do you how do you exercise accountability for that sort of intangible, you know, lack of gentleness, yeah. uh, which? I think is a sin, but now we're in that grayer area. Uh, and honestly, I, I would assume for a significant part of his congregation, that was part of the appeal. That, that wasn't a sin. That was a, that was a feature. Yeah. 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 Those are, those are the hardest of all, honestly, to correct, no matter what form of polity you have, right? The, the, the big obvious ones, like, as you said, a man leaves his wife or another woman. Okay. That's clear. But, but questions of divisiveness, questions of pride, even questions of like abusive use of authority, those are hard because they're specter they're, they're more spectrum questions. Right. Right? There, there, there's a spectrum of is he a jerk or is he abusive? Right? It's it's not not always an on-off switch like cheating on your wife is an on-off switch. And 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 those spectrum judgment questions there's no way to get around it. Those are the hardest of all to a correct, b contain and you know, see, recalibrate and, and go in a better direction. And that's true if you have an episcopacy, if you have a presbytery, if you have merely a plurality of elders, if you have congregationalism. So I don't care what polity in; those are the hardest to correct. But I will say this to commend what I think the Bible teaches about elder-led congregationalism. Back to my earlier point, authority and accountability work best when there is relationships and presence. So. You know, the Presbytery shows up and says, hey, pastor, you we hear you've been kind of proud and aggressive in the way you've been pastoring. Well, they don't know all the all they can respond to is what people have told them. Whereas if those elders have actually been in the church, they've seen it more likely. They've seen it. Right? They've been a part of it and they're accountable for what they've seen and been a part of which is why I personally believe in, again, elder led congregationalism. Number one. Number two, I. I uh, I, I'm not going to name them here, but I, I can point to churches where this precisely happened, where, where elders showed up and said to the senior pastor, we, we think you are, uh, you're being too dogmatic, you're being too strident, we, we, you're, you seem incorrectable, you're, you seem intransigent, and I can think of one case, several cases even, where, where, where the senior pastor was removed for those kinds of things. And uh, <laughs> there was a guy spouting off on Twitter the other day who I happen to know from behind the scenes was such a senior pastor who was, who was removed for, for those, those very, those very sins. And in fact, when he was removed, what you can guess, what did he do? He rallied his, his few supporters together and went off and planted another church. And right. I, I think the elders in that, that situation were the right ones based on what I know. And I think this man's life and testimony and his, Frankly, his his conduct on Twitter continues to prove the rightness of those particular elders. Okay, but now let's go to Twitter. We see him make an argument on Twitter. You think to yourself, well, that makes sense. 
And then, yeah, you support this guy on Twitter. What's what's going on? Well, at that point, you're supporting a wolf. But frankly, you have no idea, do you? You don't have a clue because you don't know this man. He's just making an argument on Twitter and in 280 characters that makes sense to you. What's missing? What's missing is local church membership, local church presence, local church relationships. And now we're trying to adjudicate across these technologically given mediums as if we had any knowledge whatsoever. But, but, but we can't. And so now there I am retweeting this wolf. You see? People are. And again, that's why I just want to I want to push back people back to centering their discipleship inside of gathered local churches, elder led congregational local churches where we can watch one another and love one another and grow together and correct one another as occasion requires. Yeah. And I, I suppose there's also something to be said for the uh, size and scale argument there. It's It's one thing to scream how dare you as mark driscoll famously did into a camera and another thing to do it into a room of 100 people that you know really well yeah so and that's 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 not now some people are going to respond to that coil by saying well okay so you're saying all big churches are bad mega churches are bad well what what about the jerusalem church right you have the church in jerusalem with five thousand men sure what does that mean ten thousand men and women I, i i don't know maybe so but but i think there you you just have to acknowledge with size comes increased administrative complexity and difficulty and challenge and just say, oh, it's fine. We can have big churches. The Bible does. Well, no, you have big churches. You got big problems. You got to work on them, pastors, right? And you got to find ways. Think about Acts chapter five, where you get Ananias and Sapphira showing up and Peter does his, his thing with them, you know, or Acts chapter six, where they called the full number of disciples together, all 10,000 and said, listen, we got a problem here. You know, Greek-speaking widows are being neglected in the administration of food. Okay, so the the apostles in that situation, though they had a massive church, gathered everybody together to address the problems they have. So I, I'm not going to make an argument against big churches. I am going to say big churches, big problems, and you got to figure it out. That's your responsibility. Uh, so my, my follow-up question to the, the church polity stuff, and... Uh, uh, we've we've had the big church conversation on a, on a previous episode here, uh, or or at least a multi-site church conversation. Yeah. Um, uh, where uh, where when we're thinking I know about church, wrote a great book on that topic called One Assembly. Yeah, there we go, there we go. Uh, but not naming uh, names. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for the listeners who didn't catch that, that's Jonathan. Uh, uh, go back and listen to our episode on that. Um, when we're thinking about church government, where does the office of prophet fit in here? Uh, th- that's that's a claim that that Driscoll used. Yeah, I don't know how regularly. It was certainly uh, prominently featured in the in the podcast. Right? Whether yeah. he used that all the time or not, I don't know. Uh, but uh, at least on the on the podcast, they they say that the changes were made uh, sometimes uh, based on revelation or vision yeah. uh, that that Mark Driscoll claimed to have received. Uh, I don't know that he he said that he had received visions that were ever directly contrary to scripture. So it, it's not like you know, scripture says don't go get drunk. Well, I had a vision that says you can't. Nothing nothing like that. Yeah, right. Uh, but decisions that I have a word from the Lord. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, where, where does that fit into church government? There there is an Old Testament office of prophet, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's an official formal office. Uh, it clearly is there. Uh, prophecy is at least mentioned in the New Testament with, with whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we account for that when we're thinking elders and members and church structures? Yeah, sure. Well, there's, you're going to find disagreement among Christians on that question, whether or not there is an ongoing office of prophet or something like it. You know, you point to Ephesians 4, uh, 11, and he's given some to be apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers to equip the saints for the building up of the body. Okay, so we have pastors and teachers. Don't we also still have an ongoing office of apostle and prophet? And so then that comes down to questions of your continuationism or lack of continuationism, whether you're a charismatic or not charismatic. Personally, I'm 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 probably I'm not a dogmatic cessationist. I'm kind of a functional cessationist. I'm I'm probably a little closer to a non-continuationist or a, a, a closer to a cessationist. I do not understand the offices of apostle and prophet continue today uh, in any form. Uh, that's not to say 
that the word God might not give a specific word to a person. I, I, I think he can. So I, I assume he does give specific words to specific people, but I don't think there's an office of that, which is to say, I don't think a pastor should ever show up and say, I am a prophet. The Lord has told me, therefore, you must obey. I think he's abusing his authority. And that's one caution I would offer to any of my continuationist friends uh, and I have good brothers and sisters in Christ I know who, who are continuationists. That is to say, they believe the special gifts of tongues and prophecy continue and sometimes healing continue. Uh, my, my, my one caution to you is realize how susceptible to abuse those particular gifts make you. Go back to the 1970s. There's a movement called the shepherding movement. And the shepherding movement rightly, wisely wanted to address Christian nominalism and Christian um, um, flabbiness and holiness, the fact that the church looked like the world. They wanted a more rigorous discipleship program. That's good. I appreciate that desire. And so they pushed people in their local churches. Again, I appreciate that. And they said, hey, look, you need to practice accountability with one another. Again, I appreciate that. But what they also did, among other things, is number one, required certain things that the Bible doesn't require, like uh, what they called covering, which is to say anytime you made a major decision about take this job, marry this person, move to the city, you had to get a, a, a church leader sign off on it. And number two, they were charismatic. And the leaders of the shepherding movement would claim to have a word from the Lord. So now I'm showing up and saying, hey, pastor, should I take this doctor's appointment? Should I take this job? Should I move to this city? And the pastor responds, well, the Lord told me no. Well, that that right there is a recipe for abuse and um, um, authoritarianism. So to my continuationist friends, be very, very careful. I, I don't share your theology, but but even inside of your theology, be very, very careful to not to claim to have a word of the Lord that's going to bind consciences of Christians where the Bible doesn't bind them. Okay, so you, you can, as soon as you say the Lord told me, you've kind of ended conversation. You've just shut down. So if I disagree with you, Pastor, when the Lord told you, I guess I'm disobeying God now, huh? Gosh. I guess I'll stop exercising my wisdom, my conscience. So... Yeah, I think I think uh, Christians are going to disagree on whether or not prophet exists. But even if you do think it exists, if you do think there's a gift of prophecy, oh, please be be very careful with that and not bind what the Bible doesn't bind. Well, and let's uh, let's springboard from that uh, kind of narrow question about potential abuse of the office of prophet to the the wider question: uh, How should we think about the abuse of authority in a church setting? Uh, from that that narrow potential. Uh, abuse of authority that that some kinds of continuationism can bring. Uh, how should we think more generally about the abuse of authority in a church setting? Like, what does that uh, what what does that mean for a believer? Yeah. Uh, because I I could see how someone listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill could come away thinking, well, just all authority is abusive. Yeah. Right. Um, so so what is uh, the abuse of authority? And then the follow up question is, well, what does good authority act actually look like? Yeah. Right. Uh, a couple things. Number one. I think the abuse of authority is a particular heinous sin because it lies about what God is like. I'm just quoting Mark Dever there. Um, God is the one with all authority, and he's called us to image him, in part by how we exercise authority. So when a husband abuses his authority, when a policeman abuses it, when a pastor abuses his authority, we lie about God. And we say, hey, God, God, God's a tyrant. So I do think the abuse of authority is a particular particularly heinous sin, and I think it's particularly, particularly heinous in a church, precisely because Jesus ties his name to the church, and the church speaks for him, so when pastors, church leaders abuse their authority, they they, they lie horribly about Jesus. So I, I think we need to take the abuse of authority very seriously, and and we should make a regular part of our pastoring, teaching, discipling menu teaching against the abuse of authority, number one. Number two, the abuse of authority, however, is an excuse to throw out authority. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The solution to bad authority is good authority. What happens when the judge has been unjust? 
You want a just judge to come along and say, you've been unjust. What happens when the sheriff is crooked? You, you, want, you want the U.S. Army to come in and, and take away that, you know, dirty sheriff's power. Right, I'm thinking of the old West or something. In, in other words, the solution to bad authority is not no authority. That's chaos. The solution to bad authority is good authority. And I think that's what our hearts all long for is a good, just use of authority. All that to say, we as Christians need to have our eyes fixed uh, with sensitivity to redemptive history. You have authority in creation, good. Authority in redemption, good. And authority in the fall, terrible. And we've got to keep our eyes fixed on both good and bad use of authority. We as Christians need to be the first to point to bad authority and say, that's terrible. That's that's Pharaoh, you know, destroying the Israelites. But then we also need to be the first to say, hey, look, there is a there is a perfect authority of of one who came and and did everything that the father commanded him to do. And we are called to to do the same. And so that's why you get this wonderful picture from King David. I'm going to read you a little bit of Bible here. Wonderful picture of, of good authority from King David in Second Samuel 23. Uh, these are some of the last words of David. Verse 1, now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of a man who was raised on high, the anointed God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Okay, there's all this set up, right? This is a big picture frame. Th- these are important words we're about to hear. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke to me. The rock of Israel. Okay, okay, we get it. We get it. What, what are you going to say? Here it is. Verse 3. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. Good authority brings life. It's like warm sunshine. It's like rain. You see the vibrant field of green grass growing because good authority has enabled that grass to grow. And you know that. We know that. If you've ever had a good coach, a good teacher, a good parent, a good pastor, wow, those people made us strong. What is authority? Authority authorizes life. It creates life. What does a good coach do? He helps you to run faster. Right? He says, okay, give me the drills. He, he, he trims, he corrects, you know, she, she educates, she instructs. Good authority teaches us to be better versions of ourselves in order to give life. And we're called to do the same. So, bottom line, Christians should be the fiercest advocates against bad authority. And contrary to our culture, some of the biggest advocates of good authority. Well, let's uh, let's uh, wrap up with kind of three big picture concluding questions here. Then, uh, first, what lessons about church government should we take away from the the podcast uh, or the Mars Hill experience in general? Yeah, thank you. Num- number one, the most important thing in a in an elder or pastor, whether paid or unpaid, is his character. N- number two. We all have a job to do. Jesus gives a job to every elder, and Jesus gives a job to every church member. That's why I'm an elder-led congregationalist. The takeaway is people didn't do their job. Elders didn't do their job. The congregation didn't do its job. If you're a Christian, if you're listening to this, you have a job to do. So so if you're a member of an elder-ruled church, Jonathan Lehman is encouraging insurrection. On your part. Uh, no, not quite, but <laughs> prayer, prayer, prayer on your part. Conversations. Conversations. There we go. Um, so the, the last last two sort of big picture questions, what are some good lessons in general we should take away from the podcast? Uh, and then what would be bad lessons to take away from the, the rise and fall of Mars Hill? Uh, what would what would be uh, uh, bad takeaways from that? Yeah, sure. Uh Good lessons, uh, the, just the very things we've, we've talked about, about the bad use of authority and how, how much damage it does. And I, I want pastors and Christians in general to be warned. I want I want parents to be warned. I want husbands to be warned. I want bosses to be warned, right, by this prophetic example that, that Mike Cosper has, has, has provided for us. 
that we would not do what happened there. I think that's a great lesson to take away. I think a bad lesson to take away is to say, as many are saying, complementarianism needs to be deconstructed. Church needs to be deconstructed. Christianity needs to be deconstructed. I, th- I think you're in each one of those cases, I think you're, you're, you're blaming the wrong bad guy. You're picking the wrong bad guy. The difference between deconstruction, a lot of conversation about deconstruction these days, quick tangent. I, I'm not a fan of deconstruction. I'm a fan of reform. I'm a fan of correction. I'm a fan of criticism. I'm not a fan of deconstruction. If, if, if I could put it like this, the difference between deconstruction and reform is the difference between saying, hey, we got the wrong doctrine and saying we're not living up to our doctrine. And I, I think what happened in Mars Hill is they didn't live up to their doctrine. They didn't live up to what they preached. Fundamentally, I think there were some doctrinal errors along the way as well in terms of polity. But I, I, I and there may have been an overly aggressive, uh, quote unquote, toxic complementarianism. I'm, I'm willing to have that conversation too about the nitty gritty of, of of how he defined what masculinity is and how he defined what femininity is. Um, I think there were problems, and we didn't get into that. Um, nonetheless, I, I think the more fundamental problem is is one of not living up to the Bible. Not we need to deconstruct the Bible. All right. Well, we will uh, we'll we'll leave it there. Uh, I'll encourage our listeners uh, to uh, go and listen to the other episodes on the podcast that are coming out over the next week. Uh, and again, go and listen to. Uh, Mars Hill, uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill by Mike Cosper from Christianity Today. Uh, and uh, listen to Dr. Jonathan Lehman's podcast uh, along with Mark Dever. Uh, it's called Pastor's Talk. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little unclear. Is it is it just one pastor with an apostrophe S? plural, talk. Okay. Yeah, that's right. There's still we, an apostrophe in there. Well, 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 for a while we put an apostrophe after the S, and then we just decided to get rid of the apostrophe. Yeah, save, save some space on uh, on iTunes. Yeah, and I guess I guess what are we doing? Are we treating pastors adjectivally by removing the apostrophe? I think there. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know either. You, you guys spent like a whole episode talking about that, and I don't remember what the conclusion. It was. wasn't a whole episode. Come on. <laughs> well, uh, Jonathan, thanks so much for taking time to come on the show. Great to be with you, Coyle. Thanks so much, bro. Well, thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the City of Man podcast. The City of Man is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Please check out the other podcasts in our family and get more information about this show or our show notes by visiting ChristianHumanist.org. Please also leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find our show. Like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash City of Man podcast or get in touch with us at City of Man podcast at gmail.com. This is Coyle Neal reminding you to render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's and render unto God those things that are God's. This land is your land and this land is my land from the California to the New York Island from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters this land was made for you and me as I went a-walking that ribbon of high